You're listening to the Changemakers podcast, a Thomson Reuters initiative that brings together industry leaders committed to improving diversity and equality in the legal profession. My name is Catherine Roberts, and I'm a Strategic Global Client Director with Thomson Reuters Legal. Last episode, we spoke with male champion Andrew Stewart, a senior partner at Baker McKenzie. If you haven't heard it yet, please do go back and have a listen. Today's theme is progressing gender equality at the bar, and I'm so pleased to be joined by two incredibly successful barristers for today's program. First up is Jane Needham, SC, a barrister at the New South Wales Bar, with over two decades of experience in the profession, with a focus on equity and also succession law. Jane was previously president of the New South Wales Bar Association and has appeared in significant inquiries and inquests. They include the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse and also the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety. Jane has also won numerous awards, including the Lawyers Weekly Senior Barrister of the Year, as well as the Women Lawyers Association's Woman Barrister of the Year Award. So great to have you here with us today, Jane. Thanks very much, Catherine. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. Our second guest on the program is Kate Eastman, SC, a member of the New South Wales Bar and Senior Fellow at Monash University. Kate has also had more than two decades of experience in the profession. Kate's areas of practice are employment, discrimination and human rights. She's been recognised throughout her career with awards including the Women Lawyers Association Change Champion of the Year Award. Welcome to the podcast, Kate. Oh, thank you, Catherine. Thrilled to be here. Thank you. All right, so getting stuck into it, my first question is for you, both of you actually, and it's one that I'm sure Changemakers podcast listeners are really eager to hear. What exactly has your experience been like at the bar as a female barrister? Can you describe it for us? Um, Jane, you first. Yes, Catherine. The When you introduced me and said two decades, it's actually three decades next year. Impressive. So that is quite a long period of time. And of course, when I started, I was used to being the only woman in the room, whatever room that we had, whether it was a courtroom, conference, clients, the like, it was just me. And that, I think, is something that has really changed over the, the course of the my career at the bar for nearly, as I say, nearly three decades, in that it's quite unusual to be the sole woman. However, Kate has done some very interesting statistics for looking at the rate of women speaking in speaking roles in the higher courts. And it is true, if you go to the Court of Appeal, the High Court, even some of the uh, divisions of the Supreme Court, it's quite rare to see women on both sides. It's much more regular to see a woman as a solicitor or as a junior counsel. And I think that is, while that is better than what it used to be, we really need to start looking at women as being leaders in the profession rather than just making up the numbers. Absolutely. So, Kate, what about you and your experience at the bar? Well, Catherine, I'll probably divide it into two parts. So when I first came to the bar about 21 years ago, I came with a complete naivety about what the bar would be. And I came to the bar because I loved advocacy and I wanted to help people and I liked the intellectual uh, pursuit of making submissions and dealing forensically with evidence. So my first few years at the bar were quite interesting because a lot of the work that I do is done by other women lawyers and other women barristers. So often I would be in court with lots of other women and so that created an environment where 
Uh, I wasn't in the situation where Jane might have found herself in being the only woman in the room, although, of course, that's happened many times. But I found that the nature of the work that I did, which was often in the lower courts or tribunals or I was doing pro bono work, allowed me to develop my confidence in cross-examination, in presenting cases. And what I found uh, over time is that if you did a good job, then the lawyers on the other side would say, right, we might brief you next time. So my first sort of 15 years or so at the bar was really about watching my own practice develop, thinking about the things that I enjoyed doing, thinking about the opportunities that I had at the bar to do uh, my teaching work, working overseas, um, doing my advocacy work for some of the NGOs. So I loved that period of time. My second phase at the bar has really been as I've become more senior and that comes with some leadership responsibilities. All barristers by their nature are leaders and we have to learn those leadership skills. But I suppose I hadn't confronted that until I got into a more senior position in my career and I've then had to take on leadership roles, chairing committees, uh, leading my chambers, but also you went from being a junior barrister to actually leading the team and having to be instrumental in making decisions. So I found just that transition in terms of taking on leadership responsibilities itself really interesting, but it's caused me to look at what are leadership skills, are there different issues for women leaders in terms of both how we're treated, but also how we're expected to be as leaders. And that sort of really caused me to reflect on the legal profession and look more closely at the women leaders in the profession to work out who's really good at this uh, how could I be better and how can I learn to be a better leader? So um, my experience at the bar has been, as I've reflected in preparation for today, um, as, as I thought about it, I thought, look, it's really in two parts and um, the challenges that come with taking on extra leadership and responsibility are the sorts of things that I'm trying to work through at the moment. Mm. Jane, do you have anything to add around that? I do think that women in leadership is a real challenge for women at the bar because there are so few female silks, we have uh, around 10% of the silks are women. And as I like to say, we fill a medium-sized private dining room when we have our regular dinners. But there, there aren't that many role models because there just aren't many of us and one or two appointments and we go under the 10% again. So I think it's really important to look to the people who've done the work, who've, who've done the hard yards and really fought against much more apparent barriers than we have. And I'm thinking of people like the late Jane Matthews, uh, Ruth McColl, who's recently retired. They're, they're leaders who've really made a difference and who've put themselves out there and have achieved. And I think we need to look at that as well as develop the younger women who are coming through. It must be a, a very significant responsibility on the the few women that are in these leadership positions in the bar to not only grow their practice and and develop their work but to also be these leaders it's almost um not a decision to be made it's it's, it's a responsibility that gets handed to you no matter what how how does that feel to to have that weight of responsibility on you as these senior women well you're right in that's something that you don't choose to do um, Kate and I have each chosen to be to take on extra roles myself in the bar association and Kate in her many 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 roles mm. uh, including the law council at the moment and I think when you choose to take that step it's important to let people know why you have and 
for me, one of the issues when I took the role of, as president of the Bar Association was to make, make it clear to younger women that you could take a leadership role in the profession, that you could have a, an active practice, that you could be successful at the same time as having a family. And that's why, unlike, I think, men who would take on the same role, I was always talking about my children. I, I agree with that. When I first came to the bar, I didn't have uh, children and I wasn't married, so I was literally footloose and fancy free. And so all I had to really be worried about was just getting myself organised so I've had to evolve both in terms of a wife, as a mother, as a practitioner, as a leader to try to fit more in with less time and that's a real challenge and part of it is to have that flexibility and to have that resilience and to recognise the limitations in yourself so that you can develop the skills or the capacities to be able to handle all of the responsibilities that you have. Um, and that can be a real challenge as we get older. I think for women of our age and our generation, we might have younger children, teenagers, but we'll also have elderly parents. And we have to try to work out how do we fit this all in? And I think the thing for women is it's very hard to sort of bifurcate the reality of our lives from this is us in our professional capacity and this is us with all of our other capacities, the nature of the work that we do at the bar and the demands on our time in terms of meeting our professional obligations often mean that, for example, and I could take myself today, for example, today the whole day I'm sliding in minute by minute between personal responsibilities, family responsibilities, professional responsibilities. And some might call it a juggle, but I think it's just really how I schedule meeting all of the demands that I need to do. And so this comes back to leadership skills because I agree with Jane, there's so few women um, senior counsel. We might be 10% of all senior counsel, but we're actually 1.2% of the entire bar. This is about, well, I think we had a colleague sworn in this morning. So we are now down to, I think, 42 women senior counsel. So often people look to us to say, how do you do all of these things? And so that leadership role model, the responsibilities that we have are a little bit different to some of our male colleagues because they might be viewed as leaders, but they're not all looked at as particular role models. Absolutely. And in terms of your male counterparts, are you seeing a change in them? Are you seeing them step up more in terms of caring responsibilities? Are you seeing them have this conversation around the juggle that, that women have, have seemed to always have had? Yes and no. Yes. <laughs> I Sorry. Yeah, so I think um, if we look at the statistics for the bar, and I think this is sort of helpful to put things a little in perspective, yep. almost a quarter of the New South Wales bar are men in their 60s. So when you take that cohort and and you look at perhaps what might have been the life experience for a male practitioner now in his 60s, it's going to be very different to the younger women. So for the, a particular cohort of the bar who might reflect a more traditional way of um, family responsibilities and professional life, I, I don't think the challenge is there. But for some of our younger colleagues, and I think particularly our younger colleagues who haven't made the level of senior counsel, we are seeing that those men want to be very actively engaged with their kids and their family and they will often have a spouse who's also working. And so at the 
earlier stages at the bar, we're seeing some change, but whether we quite get there yet in terms of uh, an equality of experience in doing the juggles, so to speak, I think is still an ongoing work in progress. Uh-huh. I'd agree wholeheartedly with that. I work with uh, some more junior members of the bar who are male and some of them I see absolutely no differentiation between the work that the way they work with kids and the way their colleagues work without kids, whereas the women I work with universally who have children lead a very different experience. I have to be careful about scheduling conferences and making sure that they're available, that it's a suitable time for them. And recently I've uh, put on my home laptop email footer a note about how if, if I send an email out of hours, it's not because I expect a reply out of hours, it just happens to be a convenient time for me. And I've had a number of people say, oh, well, thank you for that because getting an email at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night from a silk, you know, makes me think I have to answer it and uh, it just means that I don't have much for life. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we've talked about your the evolution of your practice at the bar and how, how you've changed in terms of um, being a female barrister at the bar. But what about your how vocal you, you have been around equality for women in the legal profession? How has that changed over the years? Well, for me, when I was on the senior executive of the bar, I was, I think I mentioned I was the third female president of the bar, but the first with children. And I had 18 months in that role and I knew that I had to use that 18 months to make a difference because I would have, once I left, I would need to leave whatever I'd achieved in the hands of all the men who were going to roll out after me. And that's not a slam on the guys themselves. It's just a, a fact that people have different priorities and my priorities were flexible working, equitable briefing, just making the bar a better place to work. And I went into my role in executive leadership at the bar I think like any nice young lady born in the 60s, as I was, was brought up to be. I wanted to be liked and I wanted people to appreciate me and be, and be nice to me and to, for people to like what I did. And I learnt very quickly, and this is a lesson I'm trying to teach my daughter much earlier, that you don't have to be liked. And it doesn't make a difference if people dislike you or not. It doesn't make a difference whether they sign on to your programs because they like you or not. You have to take the hard yards and you have to do what needs to be done. And that lesson was learnt very quickly when I started working quite hard to bring in a whole raft of changes to the way the Bar Association worked, the way barristers worked, and to getting partners in that, both in the solicitors branch, the bar itself, and in the judiciary. So one of the things I've become much more hardline on is the concept of quotas. And I used to be anti-quota, and there's an article out there in the Herald where I said, no, quotas won't work. And I totally have come round to the fact that the only way to deal with this is to get more women in leadership. If we can't get more women in leadership by natural progression, then we need to start looking very carefully about how we select them, how we select our leaders. And I think if quotas are the only way to go, then we have to do that. And that's something that I've really changed my view on. I agree completely. Kate, what about you in terms of your evolution? Well, I think if you asked other people, including my family and my friends at university, they would say, I've always been vocal about these issues. It may The difference may be that there's more people who listen to me now or have to listen to me now than when I was younger. But one of the – I think my experience at university was it didn't even occur to me that I would be treated differently 
because of my gender compared to my male colleagues. But one of the first jobs I had that was sort of legal related was working as an intern, if I can use that expression now, but like a research assistant at the Human Rights Commission with Quentin Bryce. And my job was to work on a sexual harassment campaign. And our focus was on young women, often working in blue-collar work or retail, who experienced sexual harassment. And that was sort of like this moment where I was I cannot believe this is happening. And it sort of clicked to me that this is why I wanted to be a lawyer, is that I could see from working with Dame Quentin Bryce, she wasn't the dame then, but she was um, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, that this was quite important work And that as a lawyer, you had to be brave and courageous. And so if I was going to take on human rights work, then I had to be prepared to be vocal about it. So I've always had that strong commitment. And I think if you ask anybody who's known me, um, they wouldn't shy away from saying that. Because it's also my area of practice uh, over the last almost 30 years, I've been able to develop a particular expertise, not only in the policy issues, but also obviously the technical area of law. But I also see the practical implications of the law for women And so my advocacy is very much based on drawing together both my particular technical expertise in discrimination law and human rights, the policy work that I see in organisations, be they corporations, governments or not-for-profits, and also the experience of women. And so I feel that my advocacy, in addition to what I have to do in court, but that broader advocacy for policy change is an opportunity to give voice to some of the women who are terrified to speak out about their experiences. So I can convey their experiences in a way that doesn't identify them personally. And I think we're coming back to the leadership issues, I feel a responsibility as a, a leader that if I see issues around gender inequality in our own profession as lawyers and we can't fix that or act in accordance with the law, then how can we expect anybody else in the community to do so? So some might say that's a slightly Pollyanna approach to why I take on the advocacy that I do, but I think it's so much embedded into the fibre of my sense of values that I can't really sort of step back and overlook where I see that there is a problem that I think could be properly and fairly and correctly remedied. So so it's a little, I don't know, some might say I'm a bit too driven on it. Jane might have a view on that, but I'm not, not sure. At all. Um, in terms of that problem and the unearthing of the problem, what is driving for change at the bar? There's obviously there's the, the female barristers, but then I assume organisations that you're working with, corporates are, are looking for, for better gender diversity, government could be pushing, what, what are the forces at play in, in, for, for change? Well, the equitable briefing policy is one aspect of that mm-hmm. and that was brought in by the Law Council in 2015 or 2016 and that was built on the work that Kate did, one of the many things that I've asked her to do. Mm-hmm. Out of the goodness of her heart, she said yes mm-hmm. and uh, she was one of the two leaders of that committee that brought in the uh, model for the Law Council's equitable briefing policy. And I think that is a good thing, but I don't think it goes quite far enough. I think that what I said earlier about quotas rather than uh, aspirational targets uh, lets people off the hook a bit. I think we need to have some external rigour around the kind of briefing that happens, the kind of work that is given uh, to women. The stats are very clear that while you may get 
numbers of women. They're not getting the big briefs, even from government, which is generally quite good on the equitable briefing front. And I think the other aspect of it is that currently adoption of the equitable briefing policy is also elective. Uh, I think I'm still right on that, Kate. And the problem there is we're measuring the people who are happy to be measured. We're not measuring the people who have one woman in their office, have no women in their office, who never never give a brief to anyone except the guys they went to school with. Mm. We're not reaching them and we're not counting them and I think that is a real problem. I do not know what the answer to that is unless it is some external uh, viewpoint required by the Bar Association and the law societies. But given the, f the pushback that voluntary targets had in 2015, which was quite significant, I'm not sure that we are there yet. Kate might have some more input on that from the Law Council point of view. I think the drivers for change at the bar is that, and I'm not saying this in a critical way of the bar, but I think we're at least a decade behind what happens in the corporate world in the sense that the way in which we're organised and the way in which uh, we do our work as sole practitioners means that we don't have to meet some of the demands that are placed on corporations in the same way perhaps as our solicitors do. So I think we've sort of got to this point at the bar by saying for the last 30 years more than half of the graduates coming out of law school are women and uh, when we then look at how that has had an impact on solicitors, we've finally got to a point where there's gender equality in the solicitors branch. And in fact, I think the latest stats indicate that women solicitors comprise 52% of all solicitors. And then you look at the bar and say, why are we so low? When I started at the bar, 13% of all barristers were women and we're now up to about 23, 22, 23% of all barristers are women. And you, and you look at that rate of change over a 20-year period and just say this is not keeping up with other aspects of the profession, but it's also not keeping up with the way in which modern corporations are organising themselves, both in terms of governance issues, in terms of policy issues, but also actually looking at the bottom line, which is diversity is good for business. So if you've got 60% of all law graduates being women and you're not tapping into that pool of talent and you want the bar to be a centre of excellence where we are the specialists in the area, the bar is, I think, slowly waking up to the fact that our survival as an independent referral bar where we draw what we like to say is the best and the brightest. And that's an expression I've heard for 22 years related to the bar, the best and the brightest. Clearly, we are not getting the best and the brightest unless we're tapping into the reasons why the bar is not an attractive option for women lawyers. So I think that's a driver, is just the bottom line. But I think the other thing too is that over time we watch the community around us change. We have a high court which has comprised of women including a woman chief justice. So we look at, um, at women in senior leadership roles throughout the legal profession and throughout the broader community and the bar is lagging behind and I think that's really a driver because the women who are at the bar are like, oh, you know what, we've sort of like we need you to do a little bit more on this. 
we're asking just to be treated in the same way and have the same opportunities as other women in the community generally in corporate life and those working in law firms or in government. So I think they're a little bit of a driver. It's not that we've got to a point of great discontent, but I think in a sense we're expecting a little bit more and we expect the leaders in our profession, particularly at the bar, to be looking at this and taking this seriously. So, Kate, you're talking about the retaining the best and the brightest at the bar and one way to do that would be through dedicated childcare places. Um, and, Jane, I know that that's something that you drove when you were president of the New South Wales Bar Association and that was something that was quite radical at the time. Can you speak us through exactly how that policy ended up playing out? Yes, it was a policy that the bar had been working on for quite some time before I uh, became president. The first iteration was a link with a home care agency and that was that enabled people to get emergency childcare if they needed it. Just when I started on the executive of the council, one of our employees had the idea of having dedicated childcare places for members of the bar and that actually started before the president before me and it was picked up and moved on when I was president but it was very much identified with me even though it came in under Philip Bolton because being a woman of course I'm the person who's interested in children and there was some odd to me criticism of funding childcare places for working members of the bar because the question was asked how does that help how does that help our, our barrister's career now to me that question is absurd yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to be polite <laughs> uh, but because the same day that that uh, article came out in the Herald, I had had a letter from one of our young women who was married to a, a young man at the bar who said, yours was the only childcare centre place that came through. Uh, for us, we would not be back at work the way we are had it not come through. So I think that was a really helpful thing to do. I was talking to an engineer at a careers day at my kids' school the other day and she was saying that there are so few women in engineering that the enge big engineering companies are now setting up what they call school hours contracts. So you would go on part-time but you would work school hours and have the school holidays off. So while you would be undertaking the same uh, duties and the same uh, responsibilities as full-time engineering graduates, you would have time to pick up the kids and made you, you knew that you would have the holidays off. And I asked her how many men had taken up those roles and she said she was not aware of any. Mm. And I really think we need to move parenting out of mothering. Yes. And we need to look at a whole of, whole of family approach to this. And I was interested to hear quite some time ago when I, I think Anna Katzman was president, so that would have been about six or eight years before I was. I went to see some of the judges in the federal court with her to talk about listing and how listing could be a barrier to full mm. um, participation in, in the workforce for, for barristers. And Justice Branson, who was then on the federal court, told me that her experience was that it was the men who asked for matters not to be listed in the school holidays, not the women. And I just thought that was really interesting. Mm. Uh, one of the other things I worked on was ensuring that courts had a policy of not unilaterally sitting late, sitting early, sitting through lunchtime, that they would give people the ability to say, no, I need to go, I have caring responsibilities and I can't deal with that with a late sitting. And that was received very well too. But there's so much more to be done. We're working in a system which was designed by men for men hundreds of years ago yep. and the concept of flexible work around family responsibilities is probably something that's developed in the last couple of decades. So we really need to 
work out whether the way in which the courts work is fit for purpose in today's society. So it's, it's, I guess that's one structure at play as well, isn't it, the courts and, yes. and, and the way they work. So we talked about the retaining the best and the brightest and I think one issue at play has been sexual harassment and how rife that is in the legal profession and one of the reasons why women opt out of our profession. Kate, last month you provided commentary in an article about sexual harassment for the Fin Review and that article was heartbreaking to read and provided a, a strong account of you know, a man in power who groomed a, a young solicitor. You describe this behaviour as strategic and calculated. Why do you think harassment and grooming continues to persist so prominently in the legal profession? Oh, that's a huge question. And there's lots of sort of elements to that. At a very basic level, it comes down to how human beings treat each other and the sense of respect that they have for each other and their colleagues and expectations. The second might be that people meet their partners often in a working environment. And so sometimes there's some grey and blurred lines between what might be conduct that would step over the line as an unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature versus conduct that might be just trying out and somebody taking the first move. Mm. But this example that I was talking about in the Finn Review was really trying to look at the way in which sexual harassment can occur in a working environment and that the experience of women lawyers in many senses is no different from other women in other parts of the community or their working environment. But I was interested in are there particular features about the legal profession which either makes uh, sexual harassment easier or that it makes sexual harassment something that's hidden And I think my concern about sexual harassment in the legal profession is that we have a culture of silence around that. So back in 1995, some research was done in terms of the experience of women lawyers in New South Wales. Mm -hmm. And that report recorded that more than a quarter of all women in the legal profession had experienced an incident of sexual harassment, but not one woman had made a complaint about that experience to anybody and no one had even contemplated taking any formal action to address the sexual harassment. So then moving forward from 1995 to the work done by the Law Council on the what's called the NARS report, the National Attrition and Reengagement Survey Report, and I think Jane was the president at the time this report was released, we read that report and we were astonished that 80% of women barristers reported experiencing some form of intimidation or bullying and 55% of women barristers experienced some form of sexual harassment but no one made a complaint. So I asked myself, what is it about the legal profession where we as legal practitioners know and understand the law that we're reluctant to complain? And I think one factor is that we as women lawyers know that if we do complain, we ha- we know what to expect from an adversarial complaints procedure. And we think about the damage to our professional reputations if we're the person who decides to stand up often to a more powerful person who we make an allegation of sexual harassment. And so it breeds a culture of silence 
When you have a culture of silence, what that does is create a culture that those who wish to engage in sexual harassment will do so because they know they can get away with it. So often we talk about sexual harassment being a consequence of power imbalance, but one factor on power imbalance is not just hierarchical power or age power, it's about power of silencing people. And so the way in which sexual harassment can occur in law firms or at the bar and the impact it can have on women who experience sexual harassment and the fear that's associated with taking any action to report or do anything about it, I think is creating these numbers which are so high for the legal profession perhaps compared to some other areas in the community. I think the way in which the bar in particular is structured adds to that complicity of silence and power imbalance, power imbalance that Kate has referred to. And that is we, we work in a very linear, vertical way. We have the most senior person at the top, we have the next most senior person and it goes right down to the junior barrister in the, solicit- in the barrister's team and the employed solicitor in the solicitor's team. And it's usually the youngest or the least senior who has to do the hanging around with the most senior person. And I think that where, where the most senior person is an older man, that can be quite problematic because as we mentioned earlier at the beginning, the world has moved on a very long way since the most senior people in our profession were learning how to deal with people. And while I'm not in any way saying that everyone that you work with late at night is a danger, it's an almost unanimous, in my experience, tale told by young women barristers of having to be careful about who they get in the lift with, about who they stay late at night with in chambers to do to do work with because we just work in this very vertical structure where there is no ability to break out of that and actually tell someone what is happening to you who can do something about it. And that's why we need better complaint procedures, easier complaint procedures, more welcoming complaint procedures, which we have worked on, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Mm. One of the other problems is that the current um, anti-discrimination laws, the Sex Discrimination Act, for example, has very limited operation to either prescribing barristers engaging in sexual harassment or providing protection for barristers who are sexually harassed because we don't fit into the strict concept of employment. So we're not employees and we're not employers and the relationships that we have with the other barristers in our chambers or barristers that we meet in court is that we don't have a employment relationship with each other but also we don't provide services to each other. And the way in which the law currently prescribes sexual harassment in work and occupation is about relationships between the people who engage in the harassment and the recipients of the harassment. And so if you don't fall into the boxes, which is an employment relationship or a service relationship, then sexual harassment's not unlawful. And so one of the, I think, factors that builds into the culture, which Jane was talking about, is that the law has very limited application in its present terms Mm. to the way in which barristers organise their work and the way in which barristers work. And this is quite challenging for us because while we have professional obligations not to do anything that would bring us into disrepute or render us fit and proper persons, then how does that fit in with our general legal obligations if they don't exist? So I'm not saying that barristers engage in sexual harassment because they've looked at the Sex Discrimination Act and said, oh gee, there's a gap in the law, I'm going for it. Loophole. I don't think that's the reason for it. Mm. But the lack of the law 
or applying to the nature of the work that barristers do, I think compounds the factors that I was talking about earlier. And it's such a unique part of the legal profession, isn't it? And so, you know, a, a lawyer who's in a law firm or working for an organisation has their HR department. They have structures in place to support them, but you're right, at the, at the bar it's very different. So looking now to the future and who is coming up through the ranks to be a barrister, Kate, you're a senior fellow at Monash University and you, you teach at UTS and the University of Sydney. In terms of women lawyers and the people that you're, you're educating at the moment, what do you think, what's the outlook for them in the profession? Do you expect that they will be experiencing a more inclusive profession when, when they graduate and go out to practice? And what advice do you give these future barristers or, or lawyers of the future? Well, um, I have to confess it's been a long time since I've taught undergraduates. Mm. So if I do teaching these days, it tends to be the postgraduates who have already sort of put their toes in the water of a legal career. But I do spend a lot of time talking to law students and and also university uh, university students mm. about what the law is like and what to expect. So I'll give you an example. I recently spoke at a conference with the university students and I asked this group, which is probably 80% women, 10, 15, 20% men, that in the next five years, assume that you graduate from law and start in the legal profession, do you think that you might be sexually harassed? And we decided, the panel, that we should ask this question because we were going to talk about sexual harassment in the legal profession. And we're a little bit worried that we were going to tell the women that everything was going to be rosy. 80% of the room put their hand up. Wow. So then I asked them, do you think in the next five years you will know someone who might be sexually harassed? And they all put their hands up. And so the members of the panel were all a bit sort of astonished that Mm. this was the result. But it also gave us a sense that young women coming into law these days are probably far less naive than my generation where we just were told that women could do everything and we would have equal opportunities. I think the younger generation of women are a little more sophisticated perhaps Mm. in terms of what to expect and because they're sophisticated they are equipped to do things that they know are wrong and speak up for themselves perhaps in a way that our generation was reluctant to do so as Jane said for us as women born in the 1960s we very much sort of saw our responsibility is always looking up to our elders to please um, and to ensure that we fitted into where our place was at a particular point in time I find younger women and I have a teenage daughter, Jane has a teenage daughter, that the younger women have a much better sense of themselves and confidence. So I hope that the skills that they have as young women will carry forward into the profession where they won't sit back and tolerate poor working conditions, disrespect, discourtesy, that they will call these things out in a way that they're better equipped to do than perhaps we were. So I am hoping that the um, next generation of women lawyers will be fierce women and to have the confidence that they are entitled to be there as professionals rather than, which I'm generalising, my generation felt that we had to prove ourselves Mm. to be accepted. And these young women just say, we're here, we should be accepted and we're fierce. Fierce. I like it. Jane, your thoughts on this? Uh, Yes, I have many. Uh, I know we are running out of time, Mm -hmm. so I will just limit myself to a few. One of the documents I saw 
few years ago was the career intention survey from the Women Lawyers of New South Wales and they spoke to a number of law students, male and female, about what they intended to do when they left. And one of the questions was, do you want to be a barrister? And if the answer was no, the next question was why? And the overwhelming reasons for not wanting to be a barrister were oh, included that it was too male-dominated mm. and it was not family-friendly. And I think what we need to do is do the work around demonstrating either by leadership or by changing the structures that we've been discussing, that the bar is a good place for women to work. I know I have loved it. I have really loved my my time at the bar. Uh, it's hopefully not over yet, but uh, it is a really interesting and challenging and can be fun from time to time place to work. And I always say that to young women and men who come and talk to me about that. It is great. If you can pick up the work that you like to do and you work with really intelligent, interesting people, uh, the judges are usually helpful and interested in what you have to say. Not always, but usually. And I've just found it a really fantastic career to have. So I've always said to the women that I speak to, Mm. it is a great career if you work it. And what I'm really buoyed by are conversations that I've had just today in the last couple of days with other women about how they handle the unpaid labour part of being a woman and they are having active conversations with their partners about who looks after the kids about who takes time off when the kids are born and that would never have occurred to me when I had my children I had to negotiate my own version of of parental leave with my chambers and they were very supportive but it's not something that people now have to do we have structures in place for them to that chambers adopt so people know when they go into chambers whether they will be given some latitude around working with young children. And I think that the work that has been done in that space is really great because the women who are coming in are, as Kate says, fierce and intelligent. They're not willing to put up with things that we felt were necessary road bumps in our life. And I'm, I'm really happy to see that. Well, let's leave it in this mood of hope. I think that's a great way to end the episode. Thank you so much for sharing your experience on this Changemakers podcast. You're two vocal, really inspiring women. So thank you for helping to make the profession more inclusive and equal. To all our listeners, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to the Changemakers podcast and we'll see you next time. Thank you.